reminder that we have hope in the Lord Jesus. And I hope you're encouraged this morning. If not, I believe the Word's going to encourage you today. I mean, the Lord is, is so good today to us, and I'm grateful that you're here. I'm grateful to be able to get back into this series this morning because I really think it's going to speak to where we are as, uh, as a nation, but really as a church as well. And so I'm glad you're here. If you're a guest this morning, even online this morning, uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you can go to our site or send us an email, direct message, something like that, we'd love to be able to pray with you. But thank you for being here this morning. I do, and I meant to mention this earlier, I have some special guests. My mom and my stepdad is here with us. They've been here from Arkansas this week, and we have shown them the, uh, the, the sights of Virginia. We have been to the Appomattox Courthouse, and we've been to Williamsburg and got rained out there the other day, and just everywhere in between. We've been to, to Richmond and doing a lot of different things. It's been fun, and they're about to head back and make the long trek back to Arkansas later today, and so it's been good. Take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to Revelation 14. Put a finger there, and I want you to put another finger, or just open the Bible to Psalm 46. We're going to begin reading Psalm 46 in just a moment. Um, but today, I want to speak to this subject, as we're moving back into this study through Revelation that's we just simply titled Get Ready. I mean, you start there in Revelation 1 verse 3, and it talks about how Jesus is returning soon. So we need to be prepared for his return. We need to be prepared for the end times and, and what everything in salvation history is moving toward, and that is his return, which culminates our salvation and brings judgment to the enemy and to the sinful. And so we look forward to those days, and we look forward to it with anticipation of all that it's going to mean for us as well. And so as we move back into this study, he's picking up in chapter 14. I want to just look at one particular verse today, that's verse 1, and speak to the subject of what it means to fearlessly live in a world of fear. Psalm 46 is where we want to begin, and this psalm is, is a familiar psalm. I'm sure many of us, if not most of us, know at least the first verse of this psalm. And Martin Luther, the great reformer, this was his favorite psalm. In fact, he would often uh, tell his church, he'd say, let's stand and sing Psalm 46 and let the devil do his best. Because it's such a great encouragement to the church that God is our refuge. He is our strength. He is a very, or as some other versions say, he's a very present help in time of trouble. So look at what God's Word says here, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And then God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. As you read through that psalm, can you think about, can you, can you think of any other word in all of the Bible that is more encouraging than what we see right here? That it says God is our refuge and strength, that he is our fortress. 
You know, over the last six months or so, we as a nation, we've been hit with what we might classify as a perfect storm, a trifecta of events. We've got coronavirus that's been ravaging the planet. We've got economic downturn that's been as a result of that and other things. And then on top of those two things, if it wasn't bad enough, we all watched as a man was suffocated in the custody of police, which led to protests and riots and all kinds of things that have rocked and ravaged nearly every major city in our nation over the past two and a half months. Riots have burned down buildings and businesses. They have defaced public property, killed innocent people, and launched a movement to literally overturn society as we know it. We have had a hellacious past several months. In the wake of all of this, tens of millions of people have lost their jobs. They've lost their small businesses. Many of them will shut their doors, if not already, never to reopen again. This trifecta of storms has created great fear in the hearts of many Americans. And I would even add, it's created great fear in the hearts of many believers in the church of America. You see, people are scared. They are. You walk around the the town, you walk around through the stores, and you see that people are scared. Despite there being 1% to 2% chance of you dying from the virus, COVID has got people scared to death, terrified over what could happen. I mean, you walk into a room without a mask, and we're an interesting bunch of people here because you look around, there's not a whole lot of masks. But I'm not here to talk about whether you should or whether you should not. But you walk into a store today in some places in, in, in the Richmond area, and if you don't have a mask on, you are looked at like you're the grim reaper, Right? I don't know if that's right or wrong, but that's the way people look at you. And you dare not cough. I remember way back in March, early part of this thing, and I was doing the shopping for our family. And so many Sunday afternoons, I would leave and I would go to Aldi's. And it was weird. You know how this is. It's weird you go into these stores and no one talks. Like before, we would talk a little bit. You at least say hi or converse with somebody. No, there was nothing. This predates mask and all of that. But you dare not cough. And there were some times in the spring that, you know, allergies are kicking you and all that stuff. I've preached in the morning, and so my voice is already kind of messed up, and I need to cough in Aldi's. But I knew you don't cough in Aldi's. People look at you like you're killing them. People are scared. I mean, they're clinging to these things. They're clinging to face shields and masks and and the promise of a vaccine. And none of those things are bad. None of those things are wrong. But people are clinging to them as if they are shields and armor that are protecting them from an assailant. You add to that the civil unrest and the anarchy taking place, and it's causing a boom in firearm sales these days. I'm I'm pro-gun. I've got guns. I've purchased guns recently. And and the gun I purchased recently was the wrong caliber because that's the same caliber everyone else is purchasing, and you can't buy ammunition for it. So I've got a brand-new gun in my collection, in my safe, and it has no bullets to shoot it. So... It's, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's basically a paperweight until I can find some ammo that it's not going to break the bank. But that's what's happening in our country because there's so much civil unrest, so much uh, rioting and all of the things happening. Add to that some political things that always are in conjunction with the, with the, uh, the, the firearm argument. And people are buying them up like they're hotcakes. They're scared. Then you got the economic roller coaster. 
creates its own devastating and fear-mongering. Millions of people are still out of work even today because of small businesses have not reopened or been able to fully reopen, to fully staff the business. Service industry has been gutted in many ways. Add to this tragedy the fact that schools are opening, by and large, with virtual instruction versus in-person instruction, and there doesn't seem to be an end in sight to the economic downturn in our country. Families are forced to figure out how mom and dad who used to work outside of the home are now having to at least part-time share the load or pay someone to be with their kids as they do school online. All of this chaos, all of this uncertainty creates fear in a lot of hearts. This morning, you might have come in here today, and you're wondering as a family, what are we going to do? Because in a few weeks, we're going to be going back to school, our kids are, and if you go to sixth grade or a fourth grade and above, that child is going two days a week in school and three days at home. And how are you going to juggle that? What is that going to mean for your job? What is that going to mean for finances? All of those questions are out there. Questions about coronavirus that seems to continue no matter what we do. They told us in the early spring that when the hot weather begins to to break out across the country, then things will diminish. And what has been happening this summer is that in the hottest places in our country, the outbreak is taking place. Go figure on that one. Stress, fear, anxiety, all of these things are building in the hearts and the minds of people. And the CDC warns us about this. They tell us that stress and fear and anxiety are naturally generated during a pandemic such as this. They tell us that these can lead to substance abuse, and we're seeing that across our nation. We're seeing people run to the bottle. We're seeing them run to to drugs. We're seeing them run to, to substances to help them cope with what's going on. They tell us it leads to sleep disorder. People are not able to sleep because they're so fearful and so anxious. Tell us it worsens chronic health problems. And so if you had a health problem, when you're stressed, when you have fear, when you have anxiety, it it, it acerbates the health issues. It worsens mental health issues. And even in some people, there's an increase in suicide. This fear is understandable. Here's a question for us as Christians, because we're speaking to the church today, right? We're speaking to the people of God. God's Word is going to speak to the church today. So if fear is understandable because of all of the things that are happening, what should the response of a child of God be in this situation that we're in? Are we to fear? Are we to be anxious? Are we to be stressed out over all of the things that are happening? My answer to this is that no, we should not live in fear. See, we do not have to live in fear because we have a God who stands with us. We have a God who stands for us. We do not have to live in fear. There's never been a greater time of trouble than what believers will experience during the great tribulation. And yet what we've been looking at over the past several months, looking through the book of Revelation, is that the Bible depicts the people of God standing confidently and fearlessly with the Lord despite the war that is waging against them. The enemy is doing everything he can to destroy the people of God, and yet they fearlessly stand, confidently stand with the Lord. Why does there seem to be so much fear among Christians and within the church, though? I see it. I don't believe it's just out there, right? 
and that's why I want to s- say this. I've been sort of chomping at the bits this summer because I've been wanting to say some of these things that I'm going to say today because I want to encourage you. As your pastor, I want to encourage you in the Lord to not walk into fear, to not walk in anxiety, to not be stressed out over all of these things, but to simply trust and rest in the Lord. So why is there so much fear? Why are we fearful of a virus by all estimations has a very limited chance of taking our lives? As we look at the whole population, why are we so scared of that? Think about it for a minute. I want you save the emails and the whatever, save those for later this week, but just listen to me for a minute. As a Christian, what is the worst thing it can do to you? Take your life? I graduated to heaven, right? I'm not looking to go to heaven today. I want you to know that I'm not a morbid person that lives in that arena. But as a follower of Jesus, my hope is not rested on the things of this earth and and how long I get to stay here and and what I get to hold on to in my family. And I love all those things and I love my home and I love what I get to do for a living. But my home is not here. So the worst thing that the virus could do is take my life. That's the worst it can do, and I've got the rest of eternity to live with the Lord and with the Lord's people. Then bless God if that's what it's going to do, bring it on. I don't want to live enslaved to the fear of what could happen with the virus. Because here's what we know. Whatever or whenever this goes away, there's going to be something else. Right? There's always going to be something else. We had H1N1 several years ago. We had swine flu. We've got Corona 19 now. I don't know what it's going to be next year, but there's always going to be something because we live in a fallen world that is decimated because of sin, under the curse of God because of sin. So until Jesus returns or I and you die, we're going to face some sort of epidemic, pandemic, or the threat of death. And let's just be honest, we're all terminal. We're all going to die. So whether it's cancer, car accident this afternoon, or coronavirus, Bless God, we're all going to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, and our faith will be turned aside at that moment. So the worst it can do is take my life. Be encouraged with that. Let's have our eyes fixed on our, on our heavenly home. Let's have confidence in God and the promise of the future he's given us. Our hope is not in America. I told you a while ago, I love our country, and I love America as much as anybody. But think about this, nations rise and fall. So as we think about what's happening from an anarchy standpoint and, and the uprising and the riots and all of that, I hate it. I hate the fact that our nation is changing. But again, my hope is not rested on physical life, nor is it rested in the Constitution of America as much as I love that and the freedoms it brings us. But America will at some point cease to be America. History tells us that. No nation has ever lasted indefinitely. Only the kingdom of God lasts forever. So what I believe was happening in America is that our affluence and our freedom that we've enjoyed for 200 plus years has caused us to become soft. And this has even happened within the church. We've forgotten that God is our provider. We've forgotten that he is our protector. We've lost our resolve. And so that when the slightest persecution or the slightest difficulty comes against us, we freak out and don't know what to do. We become fearful. And it's not just out there. It's in here in the people of God. 
Where is our calm assurance in the Lord? Where is our resolve that regardless of what hell may bring against us, we will stand strong with the Lord, firmly upon his word, and be confident in the hope of the Lord Jesus? Where is that in the church today? I don't see a lot of it, though I know it's there. So we need to gain that back in our hearts and minds. We need to gain our perspective, and we need to look at the word of God and be encouraged from it today. You know, back in March, as we came, uh, I guess, our first official trying to broadcast uh, a service online when everything got shut down. But I remember back on March 22nd, I was preaching, sort of laying out uh, some thoughts about what was happening, trying to encourage us, pulling it from Revelation chapter 6. And I posed a set of questions to you in response to the pandemic that was happening. Here's what I asked. I said, could it be that the Lord has brought this pandemic upon us to open our eyes and to open our hearts? Could it be that he has caused it as an act of judgment and grace in order to lead us to repentance and faith? And I use Revelation 6 there as those precursor events that are leading into the seven the, the seven um, seals being broken in Revelation 7. And, and I talked about how the, the, the natural events and the things happening leading up to that moment in the end times were just natural things, but they never led the people to God. That instead of crying out to the Lord and asking for forgiveness and, and seeking repentance, what do they do? They call for the rocks of the mountains to fall and to hide them from the judging hand of Almighty God. Here's what I see happening in America today. Rather than running to the Lord, we are hoping that a vaccine or some other movement is going to save us from what's happening. So this perpetual cycle continues. I just finished, if you're reading the Bible through the, this year with us, we just finished the book of Judges, uh, what, last week. In the book of Judges, what do you see over and over and over again? You see the people of God, Israel, sinning. And, and when they sin, they rebel against God. He brings a nation and allows them to be conquered, his people to be conquered by this rivaling nation. And, and, and so this happens, this goes on for a number of years. It's different every time. But the cycle is they sin against God, they rebel, God brings judgment through a nation, and then they sit in that judgment for a period of time until finally they grow sick of it and they cry out to God, confess their sin, and he saves them. Why are we waiting so long as the people of God to seek the heart of God? Back on March 22nd, I said, regardless of how long this pandemic lasts, I believe the goal is not a return to normal, spiritually speaking, but a return to God. It's time for the church in America to lose their cultural Christianity and be drawn to the Lord with a fervent and hot heart. So have we returned to God during this chaos? Have we found renewed confidence in the Lord and in his provision? Or is our confidence in the hope of a promised vaccine to come? And here's what, I just want to help you all this morning. Even though we hear that all the time, there's no promise that it actually will come. So if our hope is in a hope, a chance, then when that doesn't happen, what's going to happen to you? Your hopes will be dashed. See, our hope needs to be in something confidence, and that means if that doesn't happen, and there's all kinds of diseases out there that do not have vaccines and solutions and cures, so our hope cannot be in that. But if it is, we're going to be disappointed. Again, there will be another pandemic, another outbreak of something. 
is our hope and confidence in that our economy will return to what it was a few months ago. It's, it's doing great, it's doing good, but it can always go south. It needs help today, and so there's no promise that it's going to continue to get better. It is our confidence and the hope that society will survive this civil storm that's slamming against the foundations of our na- na- nation. Unfortunately, what I see is more fear than faith in the church today. We need to observe and learn from the faithful resolve of believers who are clinging to Christ, clinging only to Christ as they're hunted down by the Antichrist and the picture that we see in Revelation 12, 13, 14, and following. Look with me at Revelation 14. You've got your finger there. Verse 1. Next week, Lord willing, I'll come back and I'll walk through the whole chapter and and lay out these several visions and what they mean in their totality. But I want to pull from this one verse and speak to how we can fearlessly live in a world of fear. John tells us this, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, And with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now let me set the context because I know it's been eight weeks since we've been in Revelation. So allow me to set the context. If you remember back in Revelation 12, we see us all there that that chapter offers a very highly imaginative vision of the heavenly warfare between God and Satan. And so you see there in chapter 12, the dragon chasing after the son who's born to the woman. He's chasing after the woman because the son is captured up. And you see them, when he fails with the son and fails with the, the, the woman, he chases after the offspring of the woman or the church. It's war. It's spiritual in nature, but it has its counterpart in history in the conflict between the church and the demonic evil I told you back then. Then we move into chapter 13, and this continues this interlude between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls to come with the outpouring of, or or, or these visions of wrath that's going to be coming. And and so what we saw back in the seventh trumpet is that it brings history to the last days of the age. That is when the mystery of God, both in salvation and in judgment. So as we talk about the end time, it's it's salvation for the believer, it's judgment for the non-believer, right? And so we see this happening in the end time. It's characterized by two outstanding features. There's this outpouring of divine judgment, which is going to include seven bowls of wrath. That's chapter 16. And the judgment upon what the Revelation talks about as the the unfaithful city of Babylon. It just pictures apostate humanity. And then it's going to talk about the final persecution of the church. And so in all of this, we're seeing that the church does not escape the suffering, but instead is persecuted vehemently. What we discover in this time of the end is the final climatic struggle between God and Satan is taking place. And this struggle will be waged between Satan and against the people of God because that's the only one that he can attack. Going back to vision of chapter 12, it ends, as I said, with the dragon failing to devour both the child, his mother, and the people of God. And as the chapter ends, what is the dragon doing? He's standing on the shore of the sea, standing on the sand of the sea, and he's looking out into the sea awaiting the beast that's going to arise from the sea. And we learn there in chapter 13 that this beast is going to be known as the Antichrist, and he represents military and civil power. Then on his heels, there's a second beast that arises from the earth. And this beast represents religious power employed to support the 
civil power in the Antichrist. And so this second beast is going to be called or referred to as the false prophet. He works to capture the loyalties of men and women and to move them in service and worship of the Antichrist. This loyalty is going to be represented by a mark that's on the right hand or on the forehead of each person. And John tells us the number. It's the number of 666 or the number of a man. With this mark, or without this mark, I should say, no one's going to be able to buy or sell. And so what that means is that all over the world, every culture, every economy is under the control of the Antichrist and his prophet. Without that mark, you will not be able to do anything in life. Chapter 14 reveals the actions of God and his people in response to the physical, the spiritual, as well as the economic war that is against them. And what do we see in chapter 14? This is what we're going to see today and what we're going to see next week. We will see that the church is alive. We're going to see that the church is alive. In the midst of the worst persecution you could ever imagine, the church is alive. And the church is well. And the church is prospering. Does that mean that they're safe? No. That means they're being hunted down like wolves. But they're doing well. That means they're losing their lives, but they're doing well. And that doesn't even make sense when you say those two things. How can you be doing well and yet being hunted and killed and burned and suffering with great anguish? How can you do all that and still say you're doing well? It's because their hope is not in what this world has to offer and the system's there. Their hope is in Jesus. The church is alive. They're enjoying the presence of God because they bear his mark, as verse 1 tells us. And so this doesn't mean that life is easy. We need to know that. They're suffering greatly at the hand of the beast, but they continue to be faithful to Christ. They continue to be faithful to his gospel. What is the church doing here? I believe they're doing what they've always been doing. The church is worshiping. The church during this time, even as they're being hunted, even as they can't go out and do things in public, they're worshiping, they're meeting, they're praying, they're serving, they're preaching, they're teaching, they're baptizing, they're sharing the gospel, they're serving one another, they're serving their community, they're doing what the church has always done. Why? Because that's who they are. They're followers of Jesus. And so it doesn't matter what comes against them in this world, they're going to continue to image Jesus in the world. They're alive and they're well. They're fearlessly living in a world of fear. Believers that during the great tribulation, they demonstrate or will demonstrate faith rather than fear. You remember what the Apostle Paul told the church at Rome? Romans 14, verse 23. He said, anything that's not done in faith, or anything that does not proceed from faith, I should say, is sin. Anything in your life, anything that you do, anything in the Christian uh, uh, life and economy that's not proceeding from faith, being coming from faith, or having the root in faith is sin. And so what do we see here? We see that the opposite of faith is fear. The opposite of faith is fearing what might happen. So what is faith? According to the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Now, what does that mean? Is faith some blind philosophy, some blind ideology, some blind uh, connectionless idea that's out there? Not at all. That's not what faith is. Faith is not faith in faith. It's not hope in hope. Faith is faith 
It's trust in the Lord. It's trust in the Lord's word. It's a calm assurance in what God has said, what God has revealed in his word. It's not an empty hope. It's confidence in God's revealed word to us. It is faith then that enables believers to live fearlessly in a fearful world. Suffering Church here in Revelation 14 teaches three things about living without fear, and I want to share them with you really quick. The people of God, number one, can live without fear because the presence of God is ever with his people. We sang about that just a moment ago. The presence of God is ever with his people, always with his people. What do we see here in Revelation 14.1? Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. John here sees the Lamb of God there on Mount Zion. What does that mean? It means he's in Jerusalem. I don't, we don't know if it's spiritual, a heavenly vision of Jerusalem, an earthly vision of Jerusalem. It doesn't matter at this point. We'll talk more about that next week. But right here, what John is telling us is this idea of the presence of God, the ever presence of God. And so Mount Zion speaks of Jerusalem, but more specifically, it symbolizes the Temple Mount presence of God in the temple. Prophetically, we know that Mount Zion is the capital of the renewed kingdom of God. It's what's going to be established by the Messiah. The early verses of Revelation 14 here contrast the dragon with the lamb. If we were to continue to read, we we see this contrasting taking place, pulling from what we've already seen in chapter 12, verse 17, as the dragon stands on the sea or the shore of the sea, awaiting the emergence of the beast. The lamb here is standing on the mountain, Mount Zion, there at the temple mount with his people, there to protect, there to uphold, there to encourage, there to nurture. Jesus is pictured with his people You see, the Bible teaches us that God is omnipresent. He's not just in that one place. He's in every place. He's also present with his people. And this fact will never change because God is immutable. What does that big word mean? It means he never changes. One of the things that we ought to be so grateful to God for is the fact that he's not fickle. God's love and affection for you doesn't change. It's not fickle. It's not hot one moment and lukewarm the next. It's always hot. His affection is always burning over, brimming over. He loves you, cares for you. His his attention is always on you. He never changes. And so when it tells us that God is present, that he is our refuge and strength, that he's our fortress, that means that never changes. It doesn't mean that there's certain days during the week that he's out to lunch or he's busy or he's got a meeting or he's dealing with someone else. Sometimes we're fearful to bring or hesitant to bring our concerns to the Lord because we think that we're going to burden him with that. What kind of God would we serve if he can't deal with all of our things at one time? That's an anthropomorphic or a man-centered view of who God is. We can't do that. He's almighty. Psalmist tells us in Psalm 46 that he's a very or an ever-present help in time of trouble. And so today, that ought to be an encouragement to you. Despite all the challenges that are arising in life, we can trust that God will be with us through them all, no matter what the challenge is. Cancer diagnosis, God's there. Marital issues, God is there. Financial issues, God is there. Relational issues, God is there. Loss of job, God is there. None of that takes him by surprise. God doesn't set up in heaven and wring his hands and wonder, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? His life is falling apart. Her life is falling apart. That family's in trouble. What are we going to do, Trinity? What are we going to do, 
angels of heaven. That's not what God does at all. He knows what everything is happening, when it's going to happen. He's allowed it to happen. Sometimes he even causes it to happen. So despite all the challenges, we can trust that God will be with us through them all. We can trust in the God who is present through the threat of the virus and the economic depression, civil unrest, persecution, natural disaster, and anything and everything else that this fallen world may bring against us. We can trust that God will be ever with his people. There's a second reason we don't have to fear, and that is the conquering Savior stands on our behalf. Not only is he present there, He's standing, John tells us. He stood on the mount. And so Jesus here sees the lamb standing. What's the big deal about standing? One commentator tells us that this term is, carries the idea, carries the connotation of a military metaphor picturing a divine warrior ready to annihilate his enemy. What do you do before you go to battle? You're not in a lazy boy reclining. You're standing at attention and you're ready to go in. That's what Jesus is doing for you. He's a conquering Savior standing on your behalf. That's a comfort. That's good comfort for those who are going to face the tribulation one day. Everything and everyone in the world will be against the people of God during the tribulation. They will not be able to buy. They will not be able to sell because they don't have the mark of the beast. They will not be able to enjoy previous freedoms or even travel without the risk of exposure. The beast is warring against them. But who's standing with the church? It's the conquering Lord Jesus Christ. Today, Jesus stands for you and me. Do you believe that? Or is that just preacher speak? Is that just Sunday talk? Do you really believe that Jesus stands with and for you? Do you believe that nothing and no one can touch your life without first going through him? Think about this. Coronavirus cannot touch you. Cancer cannot touch you. A declining economy cannot touch you. The demons of hell cannot touch you. Nothing can touch your life without the blessing and the permission of Almighty God. That's what the Bible tells us. And if you don't believe that, take your Bible. We're not going to go there this morning. But I want you to look at Job chapter 1 and 2. And what you see there is two different times. The devil himself comes before the Lord. And he has to ask permission to go and to sift or to, to, to make suffer the man we know as Job. God was in control of that whole thing. As his family was being taken from him, as his finances were being taken from him, as his friends were being taken from him, as his health was being taken from him, God was in control every single time. Because every time the devil had to ask what he could do, God says, yes, go and do it. But here's what you can't do. Don't kill him. And don't touch him. God stands for us. He stands on our behalf. And so there's no need to fear anything or anyone in this world. Why? Because victory belongs to the Lord. Victory belongs to the Lord. There's a third thing, and I'm going to share with you quickly. We do not have to fear because we share in his victory through redemption. Going on in this verse, who's standing with the Lamb? John says that there's 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So standing with the Lamb here, John sees 144,000. These are the same 144,000 that we looked at back in Revelation 7. Who do they represent? I believe they represent the church. Primarily, <clears throat> excuse me, primarily I believe they speak 
uh, most specifically of those who are the victorious saints during the tribulation. But the secondary issue is that they, or the references that they refer to all Christians of all time. We all stand with the Lord. We all experience His victory through redemption. So they bear the mark of Christ. They bear the mark of the Father on their foreheads. Again, a reference back to Revelation 7, when the people of God are sealed before the seven seals are opened on the scroll. Before this eschaton things begins to play out, God seals his people so that they have his mark and the sinful apostate humanity have the mark of the beast on their life. In all of this, the work of Jesus on the cross and the shedding of his blood was, has brought them victory. We have victory today. We can stand with confidence. We do not have to fear because of what Jesus has done for us. And so here the vision of chapter 14 tells us and helps us to realize that God stands with us. But here's another thing that we need to know about this. What we're reading in Revelation 14 is not going to be actualized until chapters 21, 20, 20, 21, and 22. So this is a vision of things yet to come. And so what is happening here? God is using this to encourage his people to continue to be faithful to the end, to endure, to persevere through victory. Robert Mounts, in his commentary, helps us here. He says, visions of what will be strengthen the believer to endure the reality of what for the present must be. Visions of what will be help strengthen the believer to endure what today must be. That's what Robert Mount says. What does that mean? That means what we see in Revelation and what we, how we see the church faithfully standing, faithfully enduring, faithfully living out their faith, confessional faith, not hidden, not scared, not taking crazy risk, right? I would think the church is doing what's necessary like the early church did to not just be so open that they could be wiped out, but they're also not so fearful that they just sit and shrink and, and, and shudder in fear. But they're living out their faith wisely, cautiously, um, faithfully, but they're living it out. That's what we see. So we see that in the end times, and that helps us to know that we can do that today as we face our own set of situations. So this truth enables believers to endure in spite of the evil that may come against them. You see, today we can and we must live fearlessly in this world of fear because the victory is already ours. It was won by the Lord Jesus on the Calvary. It was won through his shed blood there on the cross. Blood that was used to purchase and redeem us to God. <clears throat> we are no longer under the tyranny of the enemy. We're no longer in bondage to our sin. As the people of God, we are free. As always, this is an already not yet thing. We're experiencing it, but there's still more to come. More salvation to come. We're free from our sin. We're free from the enemy, but we're not free from the temptations and the assaults that come from those. The war against the people of God is raging. It's gruesome. We, however, have nothing to fear because we have a God who's with us. We have a Savior who is conquering and stands with us, and we've experienced the victory of redemption. What's the worst thing that can happen? I guess you die. <clears throat> but that's the worst. There's so much fear and frustration in the world today because of this perfect storm. On one level, it's understandable, it's understandable that those who do not know God would be fearful. 
The child of God, on the other hand, should never be overcome with fear. Why? We are a people of faith. Again, it's not a blind faith. Our faith is a calm assurance in what God has said. It is a simple trust in the Bible's record. Here's where our faith is. We look and read those Old Testament stories of how God stood with his people and faithfully, faithfully preserved, protected, and, and conquered on their behalf. We look and see how the early church went through its own cycles of ups and downs and difficulties and blessings. And we see that God in every situation, in every step, was with them. I was reading this morning, Acts 28, and just reminded, here's Paul. You know the story, Paul, he, he, had, he was arrested as he went back to Jerusalem, warned by different people, different brothers in the Lord, that if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be shackled, you're going to be in prison, you're going to be arrested, you're going to lose your life. And he says, i got to go, i got to go, i got to go. And so he goes, he's arrested, he appeals to Caesar, he's on a boat, shipwrecked and all kinds of different things, headed to Rome. He gets to Rome. Here's a guy that he knows he's going to lose his life. He knows it's going to end badly. But what is he doing? He continues to encourage the church. He continues to seek to win his Jewish brothers to faith in Christ, even in Rome. He's having people come and visit him. Even as he's changed to a Roman soldier, he continues to live out faithfully, despite all the things that came against him. How can he do that? Because he knows God is with him. Today, our hope, I'm just going to put it in my perspective. Today, my hope is not in a mask. Again, wear it if you feel you need to. I wear it when I have to and and all of that. We we follow the rules. But my hope's not in that. My hope's not in a vaccine, 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 vaccine. My hope's not in that. Sometimes I need vaccine with context. My hope's not in those things because I know that my life's going to end at some point. I don't know when. I don't know when that'll be. I, I think I've told you before that my, my dad died when I was 35, so seven years ago when I was 35, that was a weird year. I just felt like for whatever reason I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. I mean, I don't want to shrink back, and I wasn't scared or anything like that. It was just weird. It's a weird moment for me. I've talked to other people who have outlived their parents who died at a young age, and they had the same experience. But today, I know that my life's going to end. When that is, I don't know, but I'm not, I don't care. I'm not shackled by it. My hope is not in the American economy. It's not in the American dream. It's not in the American freedoms that we enjoy. My hope is solely in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It is fixed on the promise of the Lord's soon return. It rests in the glorious gospel that has the power to turn fear into faith. Do you have faith today? You have trust in the Lord. Are you offering faith to others who are filled with fear? Faith comes through the gospel. This is what I want to encourage you with this morning. Trust in the Lord and help those around you to trust in the Lord. This morning you may be sitting here watching this online and, and you've never come to a place of faith in your own life. You're religious. <coughs> you like church. You go to church maybe. You're involved or whatever that level may be, but you've never come into relationship with Jesus. And I was there at some point in my life years and years ago. Jesus changed my life. And I realized that religion wasn't enough. Church wasn't enough. Reading my Bible, doing good things wasn't enough. Any of those things, every one of those things was not enough. I had to come to a place where I willingly and intentionally said, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know my sin separates me from you. But I know, Lord, also that that sin deserves judgment. But I'm thankful that you took the judgment for me. 
I'm thankful that you paid the penalty. I'm thankful that your blood can cleanse me and, and free me from all sin. And so I confess my sins. I put my faith and trust in you. I turn from all of that, and I turn solely and completely to you. And that day he changed my life. April 24th, 1997. This morning could be that moment for you as well. Maybe you're a Christian today and, and you're walking with the Lord, but whatever, you're a little discouraged. I pray that this word has encouraged you this morning, that you serve a God who stands with you and for you. He's working to provide and protect you. And no matter what may be slamming against your life and against your family, he is with you. So be encouraged. And take that encouragement and give it to someone else. In a world of fear, let's be those who walk in faith and offer that to others. Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word that encourages us, that equips us, that strengthens us, reminds us of who you are. God, we need to be reminded at times, perhaps many times we need to be reminded. We have a tendency to get our eyes off of you and look at everything that's around us. We look to the right and to the left and everything in between. And we see all of the problems. We see all the difficulties. We see all of the I can't do's out there. God, I'm thankful that your word tells us that I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. I can stand in the face of economic downturn and live faithfully. I can stand in the face of a pandemic and live confidently. I can stand in the midst of civil unrest and a world that's falling apart and say, you know what, I got, I'm on firm foundation today. Not because I'm standing on a, on a civil philosophy, but I'm standing on the Word of God that tells me that I have a future in Jesus. God, encourage us today to not live in fear, but, Lord, to live in faith and to offer that faith to others. Father, I pray that we would be encouragers in the community Rather than being frustrated, rather than being fearful, God, may we be faithful and lead others to faith in the Lord Jesus. That's what we need. Father, may our eyes look up. I'm reminded of 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. God, we need to look up today. And then we need to look out. I pray for those listening, whether on Facebook, maybe some point during this week to our um, website broadcast, or even sitting in this room this morning, that they need a relationship with the Lord Jesus. God, I pray that today would be the day for them. That they would cry out to you, confess their sin, and place their faith and trust in you and you alone for salvation. God, lead them to make that decision this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. As we stand and sing, if you need to respond to the Lord this morning, Right now, during this time, we're not asking or telling you to come forward, but we would ask you to grab your phone, grab a computer if you're there, watching us on the broadcast, and reach out to us electronically. Send us a direct message through our Facebook page. Send us an email. Send me a text. After the service, if you're here in the room, I'm going to stand here for just a moment. I'd love to speak with you and pray with you and encourage you today. But let's respond to the Lord. Trust Him this morning by faith. Amen.